Turn in your Bibles, please, if you have them, to the book of Jonah. Uh, We began last week in Jonah chapter 4, looking at verses 1 and 2 as sort of the heart of the message that Jonah was being faced with. And I wanted to bring you into how do we interpret Jonah. Jonah goes through this entire lesson that he has to learn. He knows who God is. He knows that God is generous and gracious. But he does not want to extend that mercy and grace to others. God has sent the Assyrians. The Assyrians are performing an important function right now in the life of Israel. Jonah is called to minister grace to the Assyrians, to go and talk to them about God's goodness. And God shows Nineveh, this Assyrian uh, capital city, uh, repenting. We don't know what level of repentance, whether it was a genuine conversion. The scripture isn't, that's not the point. The point of the text is look how Nineveh responds to God's kindness and to God's caution to them, God's warning. The real audience of this book is not Jonah. The real audience of this book is Israel. And so as we read it and interpret it, we're asking several questions. And and, and as you study the Bible, whatever level of, of student of the Scriptures you are, you have to learn to ask questions of the text in order to interpret it. Questions like, Who is it written to? Who's the audience? Who are the authors and actors within the text? What are the main points of the text? These are questions uh, that you have to ask as you read. A, A good exegete, a good student of the Scripture, is a good question asker. That means even children can do it. If they just learn to ask questions, Children are really good at asking questions. Just take a long trip with them. You'll get a thousand questions. Children can do this. That's what makes the Scripture so beautiful, is its level of simplicity, of study, if you start asking questions of the text. So the right audience of Jonah is the nation of Israel in Jonah's day and in in this period of Israel's failure. Israel had begun... had launched headlong into idolatry. They were in a cycle, a cycle of departing from the Lord, departing from God's covenant with them. God brings in chastening, usually through a foreign entity like Assyria. He brings in chastening. They then repent. God blesses, and they start back down the path of idolatry. I've entitled it Confronted by Grace because this is, this is the big issue that Israel is facing. They have made grace a, a cheap thing, something that does not require discipleship and training in their lives. And, and they're always kind of surprised when God's blessing starts to turn into training and into discipline and correction. Um, and they had they had started into this down this path of treating grace as though it's something that they somehow had earned and deserved. And so you're going to see both of these come out. Both of them are distortions of the goodness and kindness of God. Both of them are distortions of Israel's relationship with God. Which I think the best text in the Old Testament that explains Israel's relationship with God is Deuteronomy chapter seven. 
where God says to them through Moses, I did not choose you because you were the biggest group of people, the most righteous group of people. I did not choose you because you had the best history or the best future. I chose you because I decided to set my love upon you. This is the essence of their relationship. It's played out in the covenant that God made with Abraham when he shows up and he says, uh, I want to introduce myself and here's what I want to do for you. And there's nothing you can do to earn this. I'm going to do this for you because I've decided to do this for you. And he, he enacts a covenant ritual in which Abraham makes no promises, makes no commitments. He is simply the receiver of God's goodness and grace. So grace is this benevolent goodness of God of which we receive and then respond not out of not out of any type of uh, earning or duty but we respond to it because it's just so amazing it's just so good and so this is the heart of what's going on in Jonah and in Israel's life god is reminding them he's confronting them with grace so I think the, uh, let me read the text and then we're just going to kind of go paragraph by paragraph through the book of Jonah now. All right, so this is Jonah 1, 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee for, uh, to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he uh, paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now there's a lot of Tarshish or Tarshish, however you want to say it, but the, you notice this key phrase that comes up often in this paragraph is the presence of the Lord. The fleeing prophet. But you notice something else. You notice Nineveh's name and their deeds have come up into the presence of the Lord. So I don't know how you read this text. I don't, I don't know how we could read the text and not say sort of the main issue is God's presence. God's awareness, His presiding over His creation. And so the lesson that I'm going to try and bring out is that God graciously, He graciously presides over all His creation. I think this is an important lesson for Israel. If God sees Nineveh's sin, guess who else God's guess who else sin God sees? If God is aware of their evil, he's aware of your evil, Israel. If Jonah is trying to run from the presence of the Lord and he can't, this is kind of a foolish thing. Israel, you can't run from my presence. I think this is the big idea of this, this little paragraph. Um, first, I, wanna, I, I think it's important to realize that God's presence for Israel and for Nineveh is a comfort and a caution. It's a comfort in that God tells Israel and He tells us that He walks through life with us. In Exodus 33, this is a, a beautiful text where Moses enters into the tabernacle, the tent of presence is what it's called in the text. The tent of presence. He walks in, Joshua walks in with him, his attendant. 
Um, he walks into the tent. Moses goes into the very presence of the Lord. Whenever Moses went in, a pillar of, of smoke would be above the, uh, the holy place or a pillar of fire symbolizing God's presence. Moses would enter that, and the text said he would speak face-to-face with God. Guess what the word face is? It's the word presence. It's the same word. Because the idea of presence is the idea of face-to-face. It's a comfort to us to know that God is with us. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 28. Lo, I am with you sometimes. Lo, I'm with you when you're at home, but I, I don't go with you at work. No, what does Jesus say? He says, go into all the nations, go into all the world, uh, uh, making disciples uh, of all the nations, teaching them to observe or obey what I've taught you, baptizing them, and lo, I am with you always. We read in our text in John, What does Jesus promise us as his people? I won't leave you as orphans. I will be with you. Guys, it is a great comfort to us. And it's something that we grow in understanding that God is present with us every day of our lives. It's something we teach our children. That God is not distant. He's not far away. He's right here. We call this the Coram Dea. Deo of God, living in the presence of God, learning to live as though God is with us every moment of every day because He is. And this is a tremendous message that is being subtly communicated, if not directly communicated to Israel. I'm with you. They were questioning God's presence because the Assyrians had come and were destroying them, taking advantage of them, stealing their goods. And so the obvious question is, God, are you here? And God is saying, yeah, look at, the, look at your crazy prophet who thinks he can run from me. <laughs> kind of funny, isn't it? <laughs> Neither can you. You cannot run from God. He is present in all of our lives, in all of his creation. And that is a comfort, but it's also a caution. Because nothing escapes the Lord. Look at the, look at the very language of the text. Go to Nineveh. That great city, God knows the size of it. Go to the end of the book. It's not very big. should be right across the page. Verse 11 of chapter 4, And should I, God speaking, says, And should I not, uh, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are 120,000 persons? And as if that was the extent of God's knowledge, notice what he says next. Who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much livestock. Reminds me of what Jesus says about God knowing about the sparrows. God feeds the sparrows every day. That intimate knowledge that God has of his creation. And God says, I I know Nineveh. I know how many people are there. I know how much cattle is there. But notice it's in a caution. Their evil has not escaped me. Their sin has not escaped me. If you've read through your Old Testament There are so many times in the Scripture where God steps in and says, Yes, I've been watching. Yes, I'm aware. Think of Noah. 
In Noah's day, the, the time had gotten very corrupt. People were evil. There was lots of immorality, lots of idolatry going on in Noah's day. And then suddenly God shows up on the scene and he says, all right, I've been watching. I've been presiding over my creation. I'm sovereignly involved in all of this. And the time has come to reset the stage. The same thing happens in the book of Genesis with Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18. The same thing, and probably one of my favorite passages in the Bible, it's one of these small minor prophets that no one you know, typically reads, but if you read it, I would encourage you even to read it today, it's the book of Obadiah. Obadiah is occurring during a time when Israel is being attacked by multiple nations. A great coalition of forces is coming down on Israel. And God speaks to one of them, to Edom. Esau, Esau's great descendants, these were cousins to Israel. And it's as though in this letter, God sees all these nations coming together in a great coalition against Israel, and he says, um, I want to speak just to the Edomites that are with you. I haven't missed you. I see what you're doing. And I'm going to hold you accountable for how you're treating my people, your cousins. It's a moment of complete exposure for the Edomites, for Esau's descendants. Because you cannot hide among the hordes. God sees. He is present. And this is where Israel missed the caution. They missed how God was using the Assyrian Empire in their lives as correction because they had adopted a cheap version of grace. Every, God loves me. Everything's fine. Everything's paid for. Everything's done. So I can go do what I want. And they had gone and started to do what they want. And they adopted the practices of their neighbors. They had adopted the practices of people who did not know God, who did not follow God. And God sends the, their enemies to come and chasten them to lead them to repentance. Their view of grace had failed to be uh, to, to uh, include the training and the discipline that, uh, that this relationship with God demands of us and that God brings into our lives through that. Uh, Bonhoeffer says, grace, cheap grace, grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. It is grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. The grace that we have experienced comes at great cost to God and it comes with great confidence that God is going to train us in it. The presence of the Lord refers to His sovereign oversight and interaction with His creation. Jonah, Nineveh, and Israel cannot hide from the presiding presence of God. He graciously provides. His message to His people is not one of anger. It is one of comfort. It is one of reminding them that they're in relationship with Him, that this comes at His great cost and that he is not going to be content to allow Israel to go their own way. 
He loves them just too much. It should be a caution to all of us as God's people. God loves you. He gave His Son for you. God is present commonly and covenantally. I want you to think with me about some things that you see in the text. Okay? Again, the text is what's important to us. The first thing you see is the word uh, Lord. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This speaks of God's covenant relationship with Jonah and with his people. But you see something else in the text. You see this common presence of God with everybody, regardless of their character. So let's, let's look first at God's common presence. Uh, God extends mercy and grace to his creation, regardless of their character. And God has been extending that grace to Nineveh, that kindness, that mercy. He didn't destroy Nineveh. And I think this is one of the big questions that Jonah has. God, why haven't you destroyed our enemies? Aren't we your special people? Why haven't you destroyed our enemies and dealt with their sin? Well, God has been causing the sun to rise on the evil and on the good for generations. This is Matthew 5 and Luke 6.35. This is the message that Jesus conveys to us. If you want to be like your Father, you're going to extend mercy to unthankful and evil men just like God did today. The sun didn't just rise on you. There's not a little cloud pouring rain like in the cartoons over evil people so that you can distinguish them today. Oh, look, I see. What'd you do? No, God's sun rises on all of us. God's rain comes on all of us. There's not a distinction because God loves His creation. God's mercy is the foundation of the merciful treatment of others. This is uh, the story here in, in Luke is the story of the Good Samaritan where the man comes to Jesus trying to justify himself and he says, what do I have to do? And, he, and Jesus says, love your neighbor and love God. And the guy says, well, I've, I've, you know, who's my neighbor? Let's clarify that. And so Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan and asks this question at the end, whom do you think proved, uh, whom do you, who, who went away justified? Who, who in this story went away righteous and the man says the one who showed mercy and that's jesus's point to us is that the we're supposed to be taking our cues from god and if god is showing mercy to evil and unthankful people today guess what he's calling on us to do this is what jonah missed this is what israel missed in dealing with Nineveh in dealing with these Assyrians who were being used by God and by the way that's not a surprise to them God had actually sent prophets to Israel to say because of your waywardness I'm going to send the Assyrians and they're going to dis they're going to be a tool of discipline in my life in your life God's mercy is the foundation for us of showing mercy to others I read to you last week Luke 6 35 where Jesus says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And He concludes this way, be merciful even as your Father is also merciful. 
God's common presence today tells us something. It communicates to us. It tells us how to treat our neighbors, even the evil ones. And His mercy today presents a day of opportunity. What Paul says, until the judgment of God comes, until God comes and and sets things aright, today is still the day of opportunity. It is still a day for you to receive the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And this is what Israel had missed. They had banked on God's covenantal promise. They had gotten settled in that covenantal promise, and it was no longer an amazement to them. It was no longer something that they held dear. In fact, they, they, uh, they referred to Him as their Lord, but they certainly did not interact with Him in that covenant relationship anymore. And that word Lord is important in Exodus Moses is going to go to God's people who are enslaved. And this is well after God has established the nation through their Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 through 17. And and their enslavement now in Egypt, and Moses is being sent, and Moses says, I'm going to go talk to these people, and they're going to ask me a very simple question. Who? (laughs) Who is this person who sent you? And Moses says, and Moses asks God, who do I tell him has sent me? And, and this is God's answer. Tell them, I am who I am has sent you. And this is, this is the, the heart of the meaning of Yahweh, Israel's name for God, or God's covenant name with Israel. And so why you see it in the text. When God uses this word, He speaks of this intimate relationship that he has with Israel by his covenant of grace. Not only that, but God is present with his people uh, because of this relationship that he's established, which he explains in, uh, in Genesis 17. But look with me at Genesis 12. As God begins this relationship with Moses, uh, not with Moses, with Abraham. This is Genesis twelve twelve. Uh, twelve two. I'll start in verse one. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Notice the next language, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice this covenantal relationship that God sets up with Abraham. It's not just so that Abraham can be blessed. It's so that Abraham can be a blessing to others. Um, this is a great conversation. God promising his presence with Moses. Uh, Moses would come out of the tabernacle the tent of meeting, and he, he comes to God and he says, God, we're going to go. You're going to send us now. You're going to move us, but I'm not moving unless you go with me. I think this is an important text. Let me read it to you real quick. It's Exodus 33. Moses says, See, I, uh, see you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Notice that language. I know you by name. This is what God says to Moses. And you also have found favor in my sight. You have found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please 
Show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too, this nation is your people. This is verse 14 of Exodus 33. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses says to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? How will the rest of the world know that I, we have found grace in your sight? How will that happen? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. This is God's covenant relationship with Israel that he has established to make them his people, his possession, and to be present uniquely with them. This is consistent with what Paul says in Titus chapter 2, that Jesus came to make us his a people for his own possession. And here's the point. God's covenantal relationship with Israel was not transactional. And God is reminding them of that. The word Yahweh or Lord in all caps reminds them this was not a transactional deal. This was a one-way contract where God made promises. Every time you see that name, you see the covenantal faithful God who has set his love on God's people. God's covenantal relationship with Israel was not transactional. It was an act an act of divine grace. And by grace, Israel exists to glorify God and to do something else, to bless others. Israel, being lived out through Jonah, missed God's cue for the merciful treatment of others. God's covenantal blessing was given to them to be extended to their neighbors regardless of their neighbor's character. What you see in the life of Jonah is a man who loves the presence of God, is assured of the presence of God in this covenantal relationship, but has changed the grace, has changed the foundation of it, so that when God says, go do this, he says, I don't have to and I'm not going to. Because you're present with Nineveh? What? I know you're present with us. I know we're your distinct people. I know the foundation of our relationship. Why would you... Call me to go and to warn Nineveh of your judgment. But Jonah and Israel had missed their cue. Finally, God's response to evil is surprising. It is presence. How does God respond to the evil of Nineveh? God's response to the sin of Nineveh was to send a representative of his covenant grace. It was to send an Israelite. It was to send someone who understood the Lord. It was to send someone who was in a relationship with God already. It was to send someone who understood God's benevolence, His goodness. It was to send someone who didn't say, I earned this, look how good a person I've been. No, it was to send someone who understood the mercy and the grace of God, that he didn't deserve it, he didn't earn it, and now God's offering it to you. It was to send someone who understood that Israel was sinning and God was chastening them through this empire. And that didn't make the empire outside of God's goodness and mercy. How did God respond to the evil of the world? How does God respond to the evil of the world today? He sends his covenant representatives 
to go into the most evil hearts and people and places around this world and share with them the grace of God. This is what Jesus calls us to. John 17, he says, Father, I'm not taking them out of the world. I'm asking you to, uh, they're going to remain in the world. And the world here is used in its ethical sense. They're going to remain in, he's not talking about the planet. They're going to remain on the planet. He's talking about they're going to remain among sinners. This is John's favorite use of the word world. with its ethical context. I'm not taking them out of sin, the sinful planet. I'm going to leave them within the culture. But I want you to preserve them. I want you to ground them in your truth so that the world will know that you sent me. What are we here to do? Why did God leave us in East Cobb? So that East Cobbers will know that God has sent Jesus for us and for them. Paul says the same thing, speaking about the corruption that was in the church, 1 Corinthians 5. And he says, uh, I didn't tell you to leave the world. I didn't tell you to judge the world. I don't judge outsiders. He said, if, if, you were, if you were leaving the, if you left the, you know, if you were to separate from evil people, you'd have to leave the world. And that's not the, that's not the calling. The calling is to live within the world. And the calling is for us to be clean as God's people as we walk into the world. And this is what he says in Philippians chapter 2. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter. We're to live as a light to the world. Our conduct, our integrity should be as though every day we are living in the presence of God because we are. It's not Christianity is not a Sunday faith. It's a walking in the goodness and grace of God every day, knowing that God is with us. Grace that we have from God through Jesus is not transactional, earned. It comes with discipleship or training. It's not cheap. And it carries with it a mission to the world. Abraham's mission is our mission. It is to be a blessing to the world around us. So some questions. Number one, how does God's presence speak into your life today? When this last week did you think or say to yourself, I can escape the presence of God right now. God isn't watching me right now. God doesn't see what I'm looking at on my phone or who I'm texting or what I'm saying about my parents when I'm texting. Speaking of teenagers here. But I, don't, I don't text about my parents anymore. <laughs> Thank God I didn't have texting when I was a kid because I probably would have. How does God's presence speak into your life today? How does it speak into your life this week? And not just negatively, how does God's presence speak into your life positively? When this week did you question God's goodness? When this week did you question God's oversight, God's gracious presiding in your life? When this week did you say, God, you missed that one? That wasn't goodness. When this week did your fears come alive and you question or wonder if God was present? When this week did you experience the presence of God when you said, God, I'm, I'm feeling fearful right now. Would you calm my heart? And the Spirit came and calmed your heart. 
Or when you, you were walking in the house and you were, you were worn out and exhausted and you said, Father, I'm about to walk into my house, worn out and exhausted, and there are people in there that need me. I know you're with me. I know you're here right now. You know me better than I know me. Would you help me love these people? And you sense the Spirit of God ministering to you and giving you the grace that you needed to go love people. How does the presence of God speak into your life today? How are you relating to a sovereign God who is graciously presiding over your life in all its aspects? Even the evil that's done to you. How does the presence of God speak into evil that's being done to you? Because it does. That's what was happening to Israel through the Assyrian Empire and God is speaking to them about his presence. Do you believe that God presides over evil? I don't want to assume that you do. I think I could easily or quickly defend from the scriptures that God it very much presides. He is sovereign over all things in the world, good and evil. Although he is not to be blamed or held you know, the instigator of evil. Do you believe that God presides over evil, that no evil that's happened to you has escaped God's oversight and God's sovereignty? And if so, how does his presiding affect your response? I'm reading a book by, about Luther right now. It's Luther's sermons. And one of the things he questions is, should we run from the plague? There's a whole sermon on it. I'll, I'll post ex- excerpts of it this week. It wasn't the coronavirus. It was the plague. He's asking that question of how do we, believing that God is present, how do we interact with the plague as it, as it rips through our countryside? How do you respond when you know God is present in your daily life? How does that speak into your daily experience? How does God want to use you, or how can God use you today to extend grace to others? Because, guys, that is the heart of the message of Jonah. Those who have been touched by grace, those who have experienced the goodness of God, those who are are enjoying the mercies of God are here with a mission we extend that grace to other people, especially our enemies, Jesus says in Luke, Luke 6 and Matthew 5. Those who would do us harm become targets for us to show the goodness and the grace of God to. And you need to think about that for yourself. This is something for you to go home and say, all right, Lord, I'm going to sit down with a pen and a piece of paper. I'm going to ask this question. Where have you called me to share your goodness and grace? And I have said no and run from your presence. Who's hurting me right now or who's really hard for me to live with or hard for me to deal with that I have said, certainly not them. Certainly you don't have grace for those people. And God says, yeah, and I sent you. I sent you someone who knows me, someone who knows my grace, someone who knows my kindness, 
someone who has experienced my love. I sent you so that they would know what you know. So sit down. Let the Holy Spirit lead you to be an ambassador of God's kindness to the people in your life. How is Jesus better than Jonah? I love Tim Keller's response or kind of his, one of his summations. He says uh, regarding the Samaritan, the story of the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, he says that's Jesus. Jesus is the good Samaritan. Jesus is the one who saw us broken and beaten and unlovely. He is the good Samaritan who has come and has cared for us. He is much better than Jonah. He came on a mission to extend the grace of God to you. If you don't know that grace today, if you don't know the love of God through Jesus Christ, if you don't know what it's like to say, all right, I'm going to stop trying to earn God's favor, I'm going to stop trying to prove that I'm worthy of his love, I just want to receive it, we'd love to share that with you. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to know the grace of God. Please come talk to us. Wherever you are in your journey, let the grace of God permeate your life. Let me pray for you.